I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on Jar Jar Wurrung country. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge leaders and elders past, present and future. Thank you. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Soul Care Bendigo's podcast, Naked. I'm your host, Gail Wilson, and together we will go through a series of storytelling, conversations and strategies about leaning into life's lessons, the good, the bad and the downright painful, as we journey back to ourselves and back to our intuition. Through the lens of witness and reflection, we will work our way through a series of raw, stripped-back, relatable topics and personal experiences. There will be laughter, tears and the occasional swear word because, hey, life is too short to hold back. So come along with me on this journey and let's talk life. You can follow and subscribe to Soul Care Bendigo's Naked to get notifications for upcoming episodes as they land in your space. So lend me your ears and your heart as we go through this journey together. Hello, hello, Solies, and welcome to another episode of Soul Care Bendigo's podcast, Naked. Today, I wanted to talk to you about the times I've had to say goodbye and the differences in those experiences. It's a really tough one, and it's hard to go back to to revisit, but I do see how powerful the message is, so I'm willing to go there to do that with you and for you and unpack that a little. Saying goodbye is one of the most hardest and most beautiful things we can ever do. It's also the most challenging. And sometimes some people opt to step out, to not go say their final goodbyes because in some ways they might say, I don't want to remember them that way. It's too painful to see someone frail or maybe it brings up contemplation of their own end-of-life experience and what that might be like. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be scared. It's It's okay to cry, it's okay to be upset, angry, all of the things that come up. Recently I was having a discussion with someone and we were talking about the times we've said goodbye and what happens between the two opportunities at goodbye, meaning that we have our goodbyes where we give someone a hug and we say, see you soon, and then they're gone and we didn't actually know it would be the last goodbye. And it's shock and it's horrible and it's disbelief and it's all of those things, it's it's so confusing. And then there's the second goodbye, which is the one where we watch someone fade away before our eyes, where they no longer look like themselves and they stop eating and they stop drinking and they go into a palliative state or a hospice state and then they become medicated. And at that point, you're almost begging for them to say goodbye, begging for them to slip away. I've had both experiences And I don't think either are ideal. I think the latter, where you're begging, is almost like you've made peace. You made peace that you wouldn't wish them back in that capacity. So it just is what it is. And you can do it with grace. And you have time to prepare. But also, it's the exhaustion of caring for someone in that incapacitated state. It's the heartbreak of watching the person that you cherish slip away from any form of living, any form of life, to then any form of conversation, and it seems cruel. But as the reciprocant, it's probably the easiest to adjust to. The grief is different as well. The grief is so different where you've grieved their loss even before they've left this earth. 
And then obviously with the one with shock, you don't have any of that suffering. No one has any of the suffering. Even the poor person who passing, if it's sudden, they don't have any of the discomfort. But then there's the shock in not getting to say the things you wanted to say, not getting to do the things you wanted to do with them. And that's a whole different level of heartache. That's a whole different level of resentment. That's a whole different level of sorrow, deep, deep sorrow. There's no good way to go, but there is good ways to say goodbye. And there is good ways to love each and every day. I've always said in my soul care journey that a lot of when life throws curveballs at me or where I'm getting irritated or when I'm losing my shit, the statement that I keep coming back to is put this matter in the end. Is this something I need to get my inner warrior out for? Is the stance that I want to make on this even relevant? And that's not dismissing my own feelings. That's just me inwardly realizing, is this really necessary? Is this go town really even important? Or is it just me reacting and having big emotions to stuff I need to do some work on? So I'll talk about my first farewell because it was probably my most brokenhearted. I had our beautiful pa, Harry Morgan, He was an incredible fellow. He is in the Eaglehawk football team of fame. He is famous for kicking, I think it's 26 or 28 goals and being the leading goal scorer kicker until he got injured on the third quarter and then he had to go off. This man also fought in the war for Australia. He was up in Darwin and fought against the Japanese and he was also in the search and rescue team. So it was his jobs to go down to the Japanese burrows which part of their strategy was that they would burrow underground and create these tunnels. And sometimes they would take soldiers down there with them. So it was my grandfather's job to go back and down and get the dog tags to bring these people back in some way, shape or form for their families and just even for the administration side of it to make sure that we knew where everyone was, no matter how much of it was that actually returned. He was a builder in Bednigo. And he spent most of his adult life living in Kangaroo Flat with his wife, which was my grandma. He was a strong kind of, how would I say this, like a lumberjack kind of man. Very, very gentle in the years that I knew him. He could certainly get a bit cross, but it was such empty-winded. It was more just trying to give you a bit of a fright, but never anything particularly bad. Slowly but surely, as he got older, the sausages got more and more burnt at each of the family barbecues. And we were told not to acknowledge that because he was just cooking us lunch and we'd sit through these sausages that were black on the outside that he hadn't realized how long he'd cooked them. And we sort of just, you know, everyone smiled with charcoal in their teeth and we, we just cherished him. He was a really cherished man in our family and he got sick. At the end of his life, he got sick. So he first got bowel cancer and part of his bowel was removed and he was okay. And then, unfortunately, he got liver cancer, and that was the thing that took him away from us. He was stoic. He didn't complain. He was remarkable in his end-of-life existence. He ended up going into palliative care who were remarkable, remarkable people. He didn't have a lot of vision at the end of his life. He'd lost that just through elderly stuff. But he went into palliative care and at that time I was working in a hairdresser's in town and I would shoot up there. My grandfather was a very proud man. I always cut his hair every two to three weeks. 
It always looked exactly the same, which is the same kind of military shape that he had, short back and sides, with a part down the center and a very neat hairstyle on the top, quite short. And so I cut his hair every two or three weeks for 15 years, I think. And I also knew that he was a very proud man that shaved every morning religiously. By the end of the day, I have fond memories of him kind of giving us scratchy tickles if you went for sleepovers. And I was always amazed at two things about him as he got older, how unbelievably soft and wobbly his earlobes were, but equally how quick someone's facial hair can grow from perfectly smooth in the morning after his morning shave to very, very prickly by the time if you've gone for a sleepover and you're always snuggled up together. And in the end, when he was in palliative care and I would go up in my lunch breaks and shave his face for him, and he may not have talked all day in these last stages where he was you know, heavily sedated with morphine for the pain management of the liver cancer. He always had people by his side and I'd go up in my lunch breaks and take my cutthroat razor and a hot towel or a towel that I could make hot. And he wouldn't say really anything, but he knew this man was listening. He wasn't really a man of many words. He was certainly a chatty fellow, but he was definitely the observer kind. And so I would get up there and I'd wet my towel, I'd put my shaving cream and everything out. And and as soon as that warm towel hit his face, it was like his whole body would relax. He'd just go, hmm, just like that, incapable of any other words, but just a beautiful big sigh. And I'd foam him all up, I'd chat away, shave his face, and he didn't say anything. At that point, he didn't open his eyes. He just enjoyed, I think, the tactile experience as well as the connection that there was, you know, there was nothing asked of him. He could just lay back and enjoy. And then, yeah, I'd come back the next day when he was prickly and shave it all off again. And that was probably the last week. And then after that, I really... We just let it, we didn't let it go, but I must have done it the morning that he passed. So we knew it was the very end and we'd all been called into his room and we'd all quietly sat around. So this was all of his children and quite a few of his grandchildren, but not all of them. And we just kind of sat around and chatted and talked about memories and moments. And and that is the beauty of the long farewell. But at this point, he was so just not even an image of himself. He was so thin. You couldn't believe a human could get that thin. I'm sure for those who have also had to watch cancer ravage someone's body, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's funny when people say the comments like, I just want to remember the way they were. I don't know if this is for everyone, but certainly for me, I was really made the decision not to take any photos of him right at the end. My mum did. My mum took photos at the end, but I didn't. I just didn't want to, again, I was happy to be in his company, but I just didn't want that to be the record. And I just found it hard to look at too. Like it made me uncomfortable. I wasn't used to seeing the human body in that way, seeing bones in that way. And so I didn't document that. I didn't take photos of it. And I remember the night that we were all told to come in and say our farewells. And each person kind of, I can't really speak for anyone else because it's a little hard to go back, like through grief and sorrow, it's really hard to go back and get the minute details for me sometimes. But I remember my time that I got alone with him and I'd asked everyone else to leave the room. And I don't remember anyone else being as forward as me, which is kind of just typical Gail, to be honest with you. And I remember just thanking him, thanking him 
for all the memories, thanking him for all the burnt sausages, thanking him for all the things he taught me in the garden and in the vegetable patch. But I do actively remember begging him to go, giving permission for him to go, promising him that I would take care of Ma and I promised that I would still turn up for lunch with her and I'd still play cards with her. And I I realise now in the seven stages of grief, mind you, there are more than seven, but in the most kind of regularly talked about, part of them is shock and denial, which would be a diagnosis or even a sudden farewell. The pain and guilt, I'm lucky I've certainly suffered my fair share of pain, but I haven't had too much guilt, thankfully. And I'll talk to that in a little bit. And the bargaining, the bargaining, which kind of was like the pleading. So the bargaining can be to the person, if you go, I promise I'll take care of everything. I'm giving you permission. It's okay. It's okay. But sometimes there's the bargaining with Christ or or the universe. Please, please let them be okay. Please, please make them well again. Please, please, please. So that's a really active stage in the grief. It's kind of like the scramble. It's the scramble of making sense of it all. It's the scramble of realizing that you know deep down that this is just the way it's going to be. But we still do this last second scramble. We still do it. And then afterwards, we have our depression, more pain, more guilt. Sometimes the depression is worse if we have unfinished business with the person. Maybe we weren't the best human to them that we could have been or should have been. And then we have the reconstruction and realizing, and we kind of have that epiphany of, well, we know everything must die. We know this. Collectively, we know this. We pick a flower. It doesn't last forever in the water. We don't water something, give it food or nutrients. The plant eventually dies. Fruit picked from a tree spoils. So we know these things. And so that resolution happens. And we realize that there's acceptance and then there's hope. Now, all of these stages are different and not everyone has all of them because often we have different experiences, the person who's passed or the way they passed. But certainly for me, I did the, I did the desperation. I did the begging, 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 begging. It's okay to go. Just go. It's all right. There's nothing to fear on the other side of this. So that was the other thing I went down that angle of reassurance. In the last stages of our grandfather's or pa's life, he did a lot of, which is really common, often particularly so with medication. And I don't believe it to be delusion. I don't believe it to be illusion or dream state. It's like not the reckoning, but the reconciling. And so he murmured and talked about a lot of his ghosts and his darkness and he did a lot of kind of declaration and accountability. It's hard because they're not really coherent enough to have a conversation with so it's not in that phase where you can kind of chat it over and unpack it and help them rid themselves of this conscientious sort of thought. It's just a declaration and he mentioned a lot of things from the war and secrets about family members and all sorts of things and you kind of just had to just pat their arm and let them talk. Again, hold no judgment. You don't use that information to better yourself or better a situation or damn someone else because you don't really know the full truth to it. You just got to let them talk. You don't shush them. You don't silence them. You don't tell them that's not true. I just found I just kept rubbing his head or rubbing his arm, just that reassurance that You can be exactly who you are all the way to the end. And anything you need to get off your chest, I'm just here as a sounding board. Nothing more and nothing less. Then we had my dad's passing. 
Now, this was a shock one. This was a shock one. He'd had some serious stress before his passing. As I said in a previous episode, I had been in communication with him that morning. He was very angry. And he was telling me that due to the stress that was happening in his life, that he thought he was going to have a heart attack and he could feel this racing in his chest. He was really angry. He was very agitated as well. And I had my little almost two-year-old who, as you know, folks, when they know you're on the phone, they just flare up. So she was pulling on my clothes. I was standing in the kitchen. I remember dad was complaining. And when I say complaining, dad was venting. That's what he was doing. And venting about the stress and venting about that he thought he was going to have a heart attack. And And then he could hear my little girl upset and pulling on my clothes and me trying to soothe her and give him an ear and give her half of me as well. And I remember him saying, can't you shut her up? Which was so out of character. Like he loved her so much. And I instantly know, "Uh oh, something is wrong here. And I said to him, I'll ring you back once I've put her to bed. I'm listening, dad, but I'll ring you back when I put her to bed so it can just be the two of us. And he hung up the phone in my ear. And I got her to sleep. It took a while. And when I rang him back, there was no answer. And then I kept ringing a few times and there was no answer. So I just thought he got busy or something had happened. I went on to work in my cell on that evening and I received a phone call that he had had a heart attack or a heart turn. And I, at that time, didn't take it seriously because I just didn't, just didn't. There's a lot of factors why I didn't, but I just didn't. I let my own shit get in my head instead of compassion or understanding. I was cross with the person who rang me. I just didn't get there. And then I said to my client, oh, my dad's um, had a bit of a turn and they're taking him up to the hospital. And then she was like, oh, should we finish my hair? And I'm like, I'm literally halfway through your foils. I can't wash them off because your color's going to be half done and you've got to go back to work tomorrow. Like I can't fix it for a few more days. So Let's just continue until we hear some more. So I got all her foils in and then we got another phone call, which was much more hurried. You have to hurry up. You have to hurry up. Um, the ambulance aren't going to keep working on him much longer. To which I replied, no one mentioned ambulance. Last time I heard, he was literally just going up to be monitored. But I don't think they'd told me all the information because they didn't even have it themselves. And so they said the ambulance are going to stop working on him. You need to get him now. So I didn't realize he was in full resuscitation. And so I mentioned, said this to my client, I got to go. She jumped up with a head of foils and left. And my auntie came and got me and took me there. By the time I got there, he was deceased on the footpath at the front of the family home where I grew up. All the medical equipment still everywhere around him. Chaos. Um, it was a crime scene, not because he'd done anything as such, but he had gotten in a fight with some neighbors due to his stress and picked a fight with someone and he unfortunately lost. The other person didn't do anything to fatally wound him, just the whole situation was just too much and he did indeed have a heart attack. Didn't I feel like an asshole, folks? Didn't I feel like the biggest prick in the world? So I arrived at the scene and it was chaos. There was police everywhere, there was ambulance everywhere. My sisters had friends everywhere that had come to support her. My mum was almost walking around in circles in confusion. And there was my dad just laying on the footpath. I just approached him and I've said this before in a previous episode, but amongst all the chaos and sirens, I approached 
his space. So I think it only technically stopped working on him for about five minutes. But folks, there was something when I emptied that space around him. It was like there was a bubble that I walked through and everything beyond he and I was blurry and there was no sound. And I, I honestly, I can, I can see it as true as I'm sitting here talking to you now. I looked around and it was like blurry, dreamlike, silent, but I knew it was noisy. And I probably, if I just stepped another meter away, I'd be back in that world. But I was in another world, just he and I. And I, I remember picking up his hand and that was in slow motion. I think it was so warm and soft. And, and I also thought in that moment, how very old he looked without his smile, without his little dances he used to do on the spot. How very old he looked all of a sudden. My dad wasn't particularly young. He was 73, 72 when he passed away, which is still really, really young. But he did have a big shock of a lot of white hair. So he, without his smile and without his jauntiness and without walking the dogs, he just looked a lot older in that moment. And I remember saying to him, oh, dad, what has happened to you? And he felt so there, but he wasn't. So the two circumstances were so different. The two most important men in my life both gone in two different ways. With Par, afterwards, I I missed his presence. For the first six months that I went to visit Ma, he certainly missed him, and it was sad. But slowly as time got on and we learned to laugh again and we played cards, the memories were less teary and more playful, that he was still a regular feature in our lives. But with Dad, the shock and the pain was so extreme. But even though he, he had to go and have an autopsy, and so his funeral was quite delayed in comparison to most funerals. I think it was to almost into the third week before we got his body back to have the funeral. And in that time, we had so much drama. I did his eulogy at his funeral, and I actively was there as in, you know, I hugged people and I said hello and I said goodbye. But it wasn't until I watched the DVD back from the funeral parlor, I didn't actually know who I'd been hugging. I remember at the eulogy, we did a video montage to his favorite song, which was Daryl Braithwaite's Horses. And I remember racing down the aisle to my girlfriend, the same girlfriend who I called the night that my dad passed. And I remember it being so unbelievably upsetting. And I remember going to my girlfriends because I was just so unbelievably sad and seeking them out during the funeral. And they engulfed me in the biggest, most beautiful hug. They were the same girlfriends that I rang the day that he died when we got home afterwards. And they came in the late of night and sat on the end of my bed and just let me chat and cry and be angry. And I feel like their presence that night, like allowing them into that, helped me with my grief better. They held space for me. That's what they did. Even though that wasn't even a term back then, they held space for me. I was probably about 32 at this age and now I'm well, next year I'll be 42. And they held space for me and they just let me talk and they let me be shocked. They equally were shocked, made me cups of tea. And then I remember the next few days, people coming, people coming to drop things off. And my brother's flight was arranged from Dublin and he was on a plane coming over. So I was certainly cared for. And I remember it was also not long before Christmas, about a month before Christmas. And so by the time we had the funeral, it was also time to get putting up Christmas decorations. And I really didn't feel like it, but I knew my kids needed that level of routine. 
And it kind of forced me to get into that hope stage that I was talking about in the grief stages earlier, just to help me get through, okay, not that life goes on. And this is something I really want to talk about. When someone loses someone, particularly suddenly, but in any essence, whether they've had a long farewell or no farewell at all, we all know that people show up for those first few weeks in the shock phase, which is really actively important. And they turn up for the funeral, which is really actively important. But honestly, there's a deep loneliness that occurs at about the two to three month mark when the rest of the world goes on, but you're still stuck in this nightmare. And if I could say anything to anyone who's supporting someone or knows someone who's just lost someone, put it in your phone because I know life gets busy and there's nothing wrong with you getting busy. Just put it in your phone, text so-and-so or ring so-and-so, see if so-and-so is ready to go out for lunch. They may not be their normal self. And as I've said, my best friend said to me, it was a year before I came back, a year of catching up with me, but I was so vacant or going through the trauma of everything we had that after dad died and our family really unraveled. So it's it's just a complication, isn't it? It's the complication post-death is really, really tough. And then the third time around, we had my grandma passing. She survived quite a few years post my grandfather's, uh, my past death, and she had quite a nice life. She always missed him, that's for sure, but she went on her bus trips and she found comfort in her girlfriends that she had at the nursing home. And then she she just seemed to one day, she's just started becoming fragile, like having little turns and having little falls. And it's just like something changed. There was a shift in her brain and then she had a stroke and then she was in her bed. The good thing for Ma was that she stayed in the same facility and this facility had been upgraded since past death that they were able to take people for end of life care so they didn't have to then move them to another existence. This is particularly great if they're surviving some a partner because it means that the partner doesn't have to travel so far to go to see them or rely on anyone else. They can just pop into the room. And my Ma, again, in the same generation of my father, didn't complain, left this world stoic, brave. Her farewell was different in that I sensed something was wrong. And when I brought it up to my family, they thought, and that's normal, that she was just in pain, so they were asking for more pain relief. But I could see her discomfort and her squirming was beyond that. And even when they did some medical care to help, you know, help her body out a little bit in the final stages, they said, oh, that's what was wrong with her. We just have to help her out a little bit. And I said, something's still not right. Something's still not right. And I said to uh, my family, do you think she might need her last rites? And they thought, absolutely not. She turned her back on the church a long time ago. She had a falling out and that wouldn't be something that she'd want. She didn't believe in God. And I'm like, I don't know. You get to the end and I think you kind of have to question it all, don't you? Maybe things you once held belief in all of a sudden are pretty fucking serious because what else have you got? What else have you got? And I remember ringing a beautiful client of mine who was a pastor at a church with her husband and said, I think my nan might need her last rites. And I went and asked my nan's permission. I sent my mum and my auntie off for a sneaky cover and while they were gone, I said to her, Ma, I can see you're really uncomfortable and something's wrong. And I know they've done things to help you. I don't think it's pain. Would you like someone to come in and give you your last rites? And as I've told this story before, she had not spoken in a week. She'd barely eaten for two days. 
She just had a little bit of water dripped into her mouth to keep some hydration. And she just wailed this, yes, that's what you've been waiting for. And so I, my client, Jen, the beautiful Jan Claridge, who is now a funeral celebrant, arrived within 45 minutes. And in this room, we watched my ma had her last rites done, remembering she hadn't spoken for a week. And she quietly cried and called out those last rites from the deepest part of her existence. As a spiritual person and someone with Claire tendencies, I could see this illumination of speckle around her, hovering above her bed. It was, it was, I can't say it any other way than it was like Christ was right in that room and heaven was literally opening up for her. She said the Lord's prayer with her like she'd said it every day for a long time and maybe she had. Maybe she had quietly to herself and just we weren't there for that. We weren't privy to that that privacy that was going on for her. We held her hand and it was, she just cried in relief, cried in acceptance. It was so breathtakingly beautiful. And after that, she didn't squirm, not once. I honestly felt that her, her essence had left her body and it was just mechanically kicking over. She passed away the next day, very peacefully very calmly, very gently, and we were all there for her last breath. And it was heartbreaking and sad and awful, but such an undeniable privilege. If only we put the same specialness that we do for when a baby arrives into the world as we do into saying goodbye to someone who leaves this world, I think death would be feared less, not necessarily celebrated, but feared less, appreciated more. And the same thing for me with her. I missed her a bit. The one thing I can say, and this is by no means to make anyone else feel bad, it is just something I actively decided to do, is make time for the people that I love. Sending text messages, making coffee dates, popping over to their house, never too busy, especially for the older generation, picking them up and taking them for a drive in your car. If they've still got relatives, picking them up to see their relative. My grief has been different in that I didn't have anything I regretted in the way that I treated people. So if you maybe do, if you maybe go, yeah, I'm actually not that great at that, you can change that literally right now. You can pick up your phone and you can text someone. We can give them a ring. How you going? What's happening for you? Oh, yeah. It's really not that hard. And please do not think that it's been too long. It has not been too long. I tell you what is a long time. Eternity. When someone's gone, they're really gone. And sure, you can talk to them at the clothesline while you do your washing, like I do. But it's not the same. Not the same as a heartfelt conversation. It's not the same as going down memory lane with someone. So before it's your goodbye, send a text, make a call, organize a cuppa, have a walk in the bush, check in, check in, check in. You will never, ever, ever regret that. But boy, the amount of people who live in regret for not checking in, not sending a text, it haunts them. 
It absolutely haunts them. I've seen it time and time again. So step up, step in, actively show your love. Treat every farewell as if it's the last, because it might be. It has been for me and I didn't even know it. As I said in my intro, with all the episodes we'd go through, the good, the bad and the downright painful. There will be laughter, there will be tears. And if you guys knew how many times I've had to pause this episode to have a little cry, but the tears are for lots of things. The tears are gratitude that I got to have relationships with these people. The tears are happy tears that I can remember something quirky or funny that I haven't maybe shared with you. It is loss. There's no doubt about it. But it's all the things. It's all of the things in a big red bow. I came here to leave. That's what I signed up for. And sorrow and grief are a part of living. They're a part of life. I hope that when you have to do your next farewell, because you will, I hope you can treat it with the love and grace. I hope you can set your heart up for less pain by being more actively there. And I wish you the best. I wish you well in that journey, in that experience. Take care, Sollies. Thank you for lending me your ears and your extra big hearts today. Much appreciated. And that's all for today, folks. As always, thank you for letting me your ears and your hearts. I feel so grateful and blessed to be able to share these stories with you and bring us together as a community. This is Gail Wilson, and this is Soul Care Bendigo's podcast, Naked. Don't forget to follow and subscribe so that you get notifications on the next episode as it lands. Take care and just be kind to yourself.